got out onto Ali'i Drive, that beautiful, beautiful patch of Ali'i Drive, got about two miles, a mile and a half in, and I felt somebody kick me in the back of my leg. I was like, what? I turned around. Well, it's part of my hamstring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I had, a, I had a moment where I was like, what do I do? Do I turn around and DNF or do I keep going? And it was one of those really dig deep sort of conversations that I had with myself while I walked for about a mile. And I made that decision that my kids don't have a choice with their, their disease and I need to show them that I'm strong. And I also did the evaluation, not my heart, my, not my lungs, not my brain. I can get through this. Even if I have to walk it, there's a lot of times in life when things don't work out perfectly, but you can still get across. And so I hop, skip, jump, walk backwards, <laughs> did a little this and that. And I, and I finished the race and it was, it was hard and hot and awful, just like Kona is. Um, and, and I still, I still got it done. Welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ, and we're on a mission to create a better world. We believe that by coming together each week to share stories of people looking, finding, and living their purpose assists greatly in removing the delusion that we are separate while binding us closer as a community. When in community, we have a heightened sense of belonging, which brings out our confidence and safety and worthiness, all of which is within us right now. For years, BJ and I would look up to the sky and ask, show us how to create community. And many years later, here we sit amongst amazing people like all of you listeners and our guest today, Megan Searfoss. Megan is a business owner, seasoned triathlete, runner, coach, wife, and mom of three daughters who learned to run because she found it an inexpensive, time-saving, and mostly mind-saving exercise, which I cannot wait to dig into the latter part of that sentence. As described by one of our friends who lives in Megan's hometown, quote, she is so remarkable, a ringleader of the local triathlon community, positive, even-handed, and supportive of all other businesses, nonprofits, and individuals. We know a bit about her background from digging around, and we know that although her positivity may be innate, her life experience has not been without challenge. Megan is the founder of Run Like a Mother 5K, a national race series, and author of See Mom Run, Every Mother's Guide to Getting Fit and Running Her First 5K. We're excited to be in the company of and to learn from this pillar of community. Megan Searfoss, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we uh, we just we just wrapped about 15 minutes prior to hitting the record, <laughs> and our worlds have been colliding for years. Destiny. <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally. I mean, you just you said you just did a podcast with our friend Nicole last week. So, you guys, after you listen to this podcast, head over to Nicole's podcast and give that one a listen to because, as people know, Nicole's been on the show a couple times. We've known her for a long time. And um, super excited to know that you've been connected with her for a long time as well. So, um, geez, where should we start, Beach? Let's yeah, let's tell us um, how did you end up where you are now? So, how did you uh, how did you um, maybe give the or go into as much depth as you want into how you um, are sitting with us today? That's a that's a 
That's that's a four-hour conversation. Yeah. <laughs> that's a long bike ride. That's a training ride, right? That's where that's the good. best stories come, long training rides. Oh, my gosh. I, isn't that the truth? I always say that uh, the guys that I train with probably know more about me than my husband does, not because I don't share with him, because who has four hours to sit on a bike and what do you talk? I mean, you solve the world's problems there, right? Mm-hmm. I know, so, don't you? Yeah. It's just like everything, because there's nothing you can do. You can't pay the mortgage. You can't do things while you're on the bike. So it's like you're just there and, and it's always the time when inspiration comes up or on a run. It never fails. Yeah. That's true. So I'll just touch briefly on the fact that I started, I started as an athlete throwing the discus and throwing the shot put. And that's because my dad was the middle school or junior high school in that time um, track coach. And that was my ride home. And that's what I got to do. So I started throwing the shot put and throwing the discus and actually did pretty well on it for the fact that I wasn't the biggest woman out there. Um, I think that sometimes we have this thought of those people as being huge, huge women and men, but they, but they really aren't. It is a speed and hip thing. So I had some success at that. And I always thought, I can't run. I'm too, I'm too big to run. I, I, it's too hard on your knees. And then in about eighth grade, my dad um, started training for his first marathon. And this was back in the day where you would even leave like a little nip of alcohol out on your run to, they thought that that was a good thing. You have a little shot of whiskey around mile 13. And um, so he would run up in the hills and we would watch him race. And his first one of his runs was the Avenue of the Giants, which is a fabulous race in California. And I went out there and I was like, wow. I mean, look what he's doing. And this is a guy that taught eighth grade junior high school, the same subject, the same grade, the same classroom, the same school for 30-something years. He needed that outlet to find himself, I think. And I think he, he used it like we do and to solve our world's problems. And so I was really inspired by that, but didn't really pick up running until I was in San Diego and had had my first child and my sister who lived in Monterey at the time, called me and said, hey, let's train for a marathon. I said, okay, which one? Big Sur. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. And that was in 1994, maybe. And this was back in the carb loading days. And so, of course, being in Carmel, California, I carb loaded a whole loaf of sourdough that day before the race and woke up with a food baby. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't know if I can carry this for 26 miles. Well, fun fact, I didn't. Um, but I uh, had a good race, and then I was hooked. And um, that was the beginning of what's been a 25, 28-year-plus journey of running and then moving into triathlon and that sort of thing. And I, I did it always as we moved across the United States because I was following my husband's career. I was a stay-at-home mom for a lot of years. And we finally made it to the East Coast, and we can't go much further, so we're here in Ridgefield, Connecticut now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we're hoping that you come back to Carlsbad, because we just found out you used to live here. You've, you've already touched upon like our favorite places. Carlsbad, of course. Monterey is one of our favorite places. We love that. And then Santa Rosa, where you grew up. Um, so interesting, when you're telling your story, how, how the mind will tell us, like, well, you're, you're too small for the discus, but you're too big to run, right? Uh Isn't that so interesting how we have these things like, so as you began your running career, did you ever have those thoughts or anything that you remember? I know it was a long time ago of like, I'm not a runner, what am I doing, a marathon? Ah, like that self-doubt like early on. 
It's interesting. I, I think as soon as I crossed that finish line and felt what it felt like to cross the finish line, mm-hmm. that feeling has never left me and never made me doubt that I couldn't cross any finish line. Like I just, mm. I, and that's, that's kind of how Run Like a Mother started was I just wanted, I want everybody to feel that way, to put themselves in that position to be out of the box, just a little out of their, out of their box so that they can feel successful when they cross a finish line. And so I sort of addicted to that feeling yeah well it's how we call it, it's the finish line energy right we um we talk about that a lot with our athletes sometimes like that finish line energy is always within you and so there's days where it's hard to put the shoes on or get off the couch or you know uh, get out of bed because it's so comfortable um that finish line energy is still within you but if you can remember those things that make the connection for you like i know what you're talking about i love the finish line not because i believe it's going to bring me something in my life that I'm lacking now, but it's going to celebrate everything about me and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, I think it's just, it's, it's testing yourself in a way that you are only in charge of yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's, there's nothing else. I mean, everybody, when you do a race, has the same weather or they have a flat. There's things, there's things that actually can affect a race or whatever, but you really have to dig and find it within yourself to get through that and overcome it. And I just remember the first time I did an Ironman was in Wisconsin, and you were probably there. Um, <laughs> We've t- just been at the same place many, many <laughs> times over the over. years. Totally. Yeah, in 2005, and I was treading water, and I am not a swimmer. I am, I, my, my favorite thing to say is that I love to hate swimming. <laughs> because it's just not it's just not me it's just it's hard and i was getting that anxiety my my wetsuit felt really tight i was starting to hyperventilate just like everybody does at the beginning of that race and it was a mass start where you're going from you know everybody treading to all of a sudden everybody stretched out and i knew i was going to get kicked i knew i was going to get hit and all of a sudden this like oh, came over me and it was like i know that's all going to happen so why am i worrying about it mm. like i can't I can't control that, but I can accept it. And I can say, oh, here comes an elbow. Oh, darn, there's a knee, you know, that sort of thing. And so I kind of started just counting my stroke and a certain calm came about me like, this is what this is about. So don't fight it because you, you, you control how your attitude is going to be during this entire race. So if you let that anger out or you let that anxiety out, yeah, it's going to be a pretty darn bad race. But if you just accept it and go, oh, here it is. Oh, here's a guy cutting me across in a, you know, on the bike. Or here's, oh, oh well. Yeah. It, it makes it really enjoyable. Here's you, that perpendicular swimmer that did not <laughs> practice <laughs> sighting. The backstroker. <laughs> yeah, the days of the mass start were, just, were super, you know, we, we really enjoyed them. They were just to be all starting together. I think that's what it was about. It wasn't like, yeah, you're going to collaborate each other. Um, and obviously now it's return, it's more of a streamlined process to allow for, you know, more accessibility for, for athletes to come in. And it's probably a little bit safer, to be honest. Um, in those moments of, of coming back to what you can control, um, the desire to be somewhere else is what pulls most athletes out. Mm-hmm. So they think about, I, I wish I would just find some clear water. I wish somebody wouldn't 
run into me. I wish I was further along. I'm looking at my watch while I'm swimming. I wish I was further along than where I'm at. And these are all things that we um, attach to. But what you did in that moment is you sort of just had, I guess you'd call it epiphany. You just Mm -hmm. came back to like, okay, this feels normal. And did you carry that throughout your entire day for that first Ironman? Yeah, I did. In fact, that's a tough course. That was, and it was the one that Mike Riley will refer to as the carnage man, because I think it was about a hundred and something degrees Mm. that day. And about 25% of the people didn't even ever make it off the bike. Um, And I was so happy to be there because uh, that was the first Ironman I had done. And we did it as a Crohn's fundraiser. My husband had just been diagnosed with Crohn's disease. It drastically changed our life. And so I did it and we raised about $50,000 for the University of Chicago and the Crohn's, um, their Crohn's research. So I was so happy to be there and it was so awful and hot and people were miserable and falling all over the place. And I was just, I was high-fiving everybody and like, you know, this was like the greatest thing. I was doing an Ironman. And now when I look back on it, I think I missed qualifying for Kona that year by about four minutes. And had I not stopped to like hug everybody and high-five and um, all that, I probably would have made it to Kona that year. And I kind of look at that as, you know what? It wasn't the time. Like the time, that wasn't the time for me right now. The time was to celebrate my family and to celebrate the wellness of my husband and kind of bring it all together. So it was a really great day. I think, I think even that's, I, I love that. Like you have this higher purpose, your energy and flow is like at an all time high and, and you're enjoying yourself, right? Which is something that we seem to forget when we get to these race days. We just get all caught up in the anxiousness and and um, the outside perspective or perception of what our performance will be. But I love the test. Like even though you enjoyed it and you raised the money and it was an awesome experience, even at the end, it's like, oh, but you missed. I know. Well, you might have missed, <laughs> but you don't attach to it, right? This is this is this is what we focus on here at Yogi Triathlete, and I think what a lot of athletes can can benefit from a shifting perspective to like, okay, well, that's that was happened. You did get to Kona eventually, so yes. so that wasn't your time. There's that's, so much more to learn right. from it. And you know, it's funny because I am a little bit competitive. I think mostly with myself, I like to challenge myself, mm-hmm. but maybe also in 2005, they didn't have the tracking that we have now. Mm-hmm. And so my family didn't know how close I was, but had they said that, I might've tried a little bit harder, but it, it actually was a blessing that it didn't end up that way. And that, um, you know, my journey from then brought me to Kona many years later and, and it all worked out. Yeah. You know, that first Ironman is, um, oh, it's so, it's, I mean, it's like no other, right? Because you don't, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. Like you just don't know. And um, having, I think, as much fun as possible while you're out there and taking those times and soaking up because you'll never have another first. And I remember we were talking about Nicole. We were also saying how we just had Tim DeBoom on the podcast. And I remember way back when, when we were living in Boulder and I was training for my first Ironman and we were at a skirt sports expo and me and a couple of the girls that were training for it, we were like talking about time and splits and, you know, like, oh, but what if I don't do this? And what's your new training? And I remember Tim just came over and he's like, you guys, like, here's a two-time world champion. You guys, it's your first Ironman. Have fun. Get to the finish line. Like, that's, so, that's so true. And it's, um, but it's also, 
you know, when you do that first Ironman, it's like when, the first time you gave birth to a child, you really felt like you were the only person in the world that's ever <laughs> experienced this. And then you're like, oh man, millions of people have done this before me. So it is a doable thing. I can, I can give birth and I can do an Ironman. Um, and, but, but also if you're training with people or you've had some success early on, it's hard to sometimes not think that you're going to crush that first race. And, and that's, I think what you're getting at is that you don't need to. <laughs> You just need to get through it. And mm -hmm. I felt the same way about Kona. Like, with the first time I competed there, it's like, okay, this is the experience I've been waiting for. I really need to soak it up. So when did Kona come into your your view was it after Wisconsin? Did you start looking back on results? And because that's what we do, right? This is yes. how we get hooked. We're yes. like, well, I could, I could get, I could trim time there. I could trim time there. And oh my god, I was this close. So when does it come into your view and become a goal? Well, it's really interesting because that kind of is where everything started to come together in my life. So we moved to Ridgefield, Connecticut in 2006, again, following my husband's job. And I actually remember at the closing office of the attorneys having to excuse myself because Ironman Lake Placid registration had opened. And at that point, it was like the, you know, the AOL um, dial up. And I had to use the attorney's computer and sign up for Ironman. And here are these staunchy attorney guys going, what are you, what are you signing? Wait, what? And I'm like, just give me a minute. And so I got in and that was in 2006. And then I raced, yeah, that was 2006. And then I raced again in 2008. So it was my third Ironman that I actually qualified for Kona. And were you going, like, were you going for it? I was going for it, and that race was um, in 2008 in Lake Placid. It rained about 12 inches. I, I don't even really know what the real stats were, but it was the um, the Olympic Oval where the finish line is at Ironman Lake Placid was covered in about a foot and a half of water. It was crazy. People's bikes were blowing up because they were hitting potholes that they couldn't see, and um, and and uh, so there were a lot of people that didn't really finish. And I I thrive on sort of terrible weather because I feel like I have a, an, another layer of mental toughness, and I think that's from my all of my life experiences. But I just knew that that was when I was going to do it. And I ran a really great race and crossed that finish line in pouring, pouring rain. And, you know, it was back in the day when you could actually cross the finish line with somebody special, and I did that. And so it was a great day. Yeah, that sounds, uh, not to scare anyone off, but that sounds like what is very possible in the weather at Lake Placid. I, too, have been caught in a very adventurous Lake Placid experience. It's, more than it's once. quick weather that comes in and out, mm -hmm. usually. Yeah. So I've uh, read a story about an experience you had at Lake Placid where you lost your, I think you had a mechanical on the bike. And so talk about, like, the perseverance you had to complete that bike. What what happened and what year was that? So that was 2013. And I had, so I raced Ironman Lake Placid in 2008, did Kona 11 or 12 weeks later, um, raced again in 2010, qualified again. And um, in 2009, so I'm going to back it up a little bit for you, but in 2009 in the fall, my oldest, our oldest daughter, Abby, had been complaining about feeling like she had hemorrhoids. And and we were like, ah, you're just a senior in high school. Eat more fruit, drink more water. And she was swimming. And then she was getting ready to start basketball season. And we took her to the doctor. 
And he said, oh, yeah, I think they're hemorrhoids, but you probably should get some blood work done. Well, never in our wildest dream did we think that any of our children would have Crohn's disease. And so I didn't, it didn't even enter my imagination. And we took her to a, a gastro specialist. And she and I were sitting in the waiting room and the nurse practitioner, the nurse came in and I said, oh, you know, we're just waiting for the doctor. You know, my, my husband has Crohn's, but we're sure she doesn't. These are probably just hem- hemorrhoids. And the woman looked at her folder and she goes, no, she's got Crohn's disease. And then she left us in the, in the room by herself, walked out. Here I have my 18-year-old daughter, 17 or 18-year-old daughter at that time. And I, we had been saying, oh, no, 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 it's not that, it's not that. And she, um, that was probably one of the worst, the lowest points of my life was sitting there having to understand with my daughter and wait another half an hour for that doctor to come in and further confirm that she had Crohn's. So that was 2009, November, um, November 27th or right at Thanksgiving, she actually had an ileocystectomy. So she had part of her, um, intestines removed and was able to return to the basketball court. She was captain of her basketball team senior year in January of 2010. Um, during that time, after she was diagnosed, I start, we started to look at our younger daughter, middle daughter, who had not been gaining any weight and uh, has sort of had canker sores in her mouth and was starting to look a little symptomatic. And so we got her tested and she had Crohn's disease. The day that we found out that she had Crohn's disease, the doctor actually called me I said to my husband, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I don't even know how to tell her. And he said, you know what? Go out for a bike ride. You'll figure it out. Just go out and go ride your bike for a little bit. And it was probably January or February. It was a really nice warm day for Connecticut that time of year. And I went out and I rode my bike and I got about two miles away and I got hit by a car. And so I was flying through the air before I landed and skidded across the asphalt. And I was T-boned or I T-boned. She turned right in front of me. I was like, how much worse can my life get? Like, what What the heck? And I wasn't hurt. My bike was completely ruined. I was out of commission for probably about three months. I had some bad bone bruising and things like that. And in that time, I was like, you know what? It's not my heart, my lungs, my brain. I'm fine. I'm, I'm going to get through this. And what I need to do is be here for my kids. And a month later, our youngest was diagnosed. So we hit the Crohn's trifecta. We have three kids with Crohn's disease and my husband. And that year in 2010, I was like, you know what? I'm going to raise money again. And so I raced at Ironman Lake Placid. Our whole family was into it. Jane, our youngest, sold race belts at Run Like a Mother to raise money for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Sarah had some activation. Abby was working for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation as a college um, advocate. And we were just trying to get them to understand that they had the disease, the disease didn't have them, we were going to get through this. Meanwhile, I'm going back and forth to New York City, you know, two, three, four, five times a month to try and get everybody situated in their new life. And uh, we, I raced Ironman Lake Placid in 2010 and qualified. So I got to race again. And I always had a little bit of a niggle in my hamstring, just a tiny... <laughs> Something about (laughs) racing in Lake Placid and then having to race Ironman 11 weeks later. So racing to qualify, being, you know, bent over in arrow position, standing up and running that marathon and trying to qualify for Kona and then racing hard again 11 or 12 weeks later really took its toll. So I got to Kona in 2010. This year, we brought our entire family. We were celebrating our life 
and showing the kids that what we could do. And we raised even more money for Crohn's. And, um, and I got out on the, I had kind of an okay swim, got out on the bike, had a really great bike was, I think, you know, number 10 in my age group off the bike. And I was going to crush it, got out onto Ali'i Drive, that beautiful, beautiful patch of Ali'i Drive, got about two miles or a mile and a half in. And I felt somebody kick me in the back of my leg. I was like, what? I turned around. Well, it's part of my hamstring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I had a I had a moment where I was like, what do I do? Do I turn around and DNF or do I keep going? And it was one of those really dig deep sort of conversations that I had with myself while I walked for about a mile. And I made that decision that my kids don't have a choice with their their disease. And I need to show them that I'm strong. And I also did the evaluation, not my heart, not my lungs, not my brain. I can get through this. Even if I have to walk it, there's a lot of times in life when things don't work out perfectly, but you can still get across. And so I hop, skip, jump, walk backwards, (laughs) did a little this and that. And I, and I finished the race and, um, and it was, it was hard and hot and awful, just like Kona is. Um, and, and I still, I still got it done. So I felt really great about that. I went back home. I took a year or two off. I rehabbed the hamstring. And then in 2013, um, I was training for Ironman Lake Placid and I had gotten new electronic shifting on my bike and I had had it for about six weeks and it was great. I mean, that's so fun, right? Being in aero bars and shifting. <laughs> <laughs> pushing buttons, pushing buttons, and things are happening. It's like little gadget, inspector gadget. Um, and I um, and I got about sixty miles into the run, ride. Excuse me. And all of a sudden, that little light started flashing that the battery was dead. Mm. And even though it was fully charged, there was a, a malfunction with the, the Shimano part that caused the battery to drain ridiculously. And I had to do that first climb back up to Lake Placid in one gear. So when when electronic shifting fails, it goes to either you're spinning like the Wicked Witch of the West on the flats or you're pushing out ridiculous watts on the climb. And so that's what I did. And that really was the end of hamstring, right hamstring. So uh, that backside of the course is Relent- all unrelentless. climbing. Yeah. I mean, as soon as you turn, like, and you're starting to head on that backside past Whiteface, the whole thing is a climb. And then the le- and then you've got Mama Bear, mm-hmm. Papa, baby Papa bear. bear, Baby Bear, baby and, and, Papa baby bear. Bear. and Papa Bear. And Papa Bear is great because it makes you feel like you're a Tour de France rider because everybody's <laughs> up there and, yeah. Men are wearing bonnets and bikini bathing <laughs> suits. People are chasing these, you. Yep. Yeah, all these crazy things. I mean, if you are thinking about doing like Placid, do it just for Papa Bear. Uh, it's amazing. So my goodness, so much adversity, right? And I think that when we look at somebody who's strong, who's positive, who's, you know, all of those things, that description, by the way, of you in the intro was from our mutual friend, Christine Boris. <laughs> Uh, and uh, who BJ had said that he, did you guys go to elementary school together? Yeah, we went to uh, That's so wild. kindergarten together for So sure. wild. Um, who, by the way, Christine, giving you a shout out, best hugger ever. She's the yes. best hugger. Oh my God, isn't she amazing? Um, 
But so much ad- adversity there and like that moment where you're like, how much worse can my life get? You know, my kids have this, my husband has this. And I would assume, I'm making this assumption, was there a part of you that needed to hold that space and support your husband? Did he feel any kind of guilt towards like, or or like responsibility, like, oh my God, I gave this to them? And Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So really interesting, um, if people don't know about Crohn's disease, it's an um, intestinal disease that basically can affect you from the tip of your tongue all the way down to your tush. Um, and it kind of picks and chooses where it goes. And like any autoimmune disease, it's a bo- it's the result of your body attacking itself. And so for Crohn's, it attacks your intestines. For psoriasis, it's your skin. You know, there's all sorts of different autoimmune diseases. So when you have somebody in your family that has an autoimmune disease, the opportunity for you or any of your relatives to have an autoimmune disease of any kind, it's just possessing that gene to have the auto autoimmunity turn on, um, is really great. It's like 60% or something. We just happened to hit the trifecta and our, and with my husband too. I don't know what do you call a four-fecta. Um, and, <laughs> and, um, yeah, there's, he, we all went through that. I think we had some of our kids were angry at him. I was mad. It wasn't the way our life was going to happen. It's not, it didn't, it wasn't anything that we had, we had thought we would ever endure. And at the end of the day, um, it's a manageable disease. And I kind of feel like everybody in their life has something. And if you don't have it now, you'll probably have it later. It might not be a health thing. It might be a terrible divorce. It might be something else, or it might be a pile of those things, but that's what makes up our life. And, and it's our approach and how we, how we attack it that our kids will follow. And our, and, and if we can lead with that, then, then they will approach things that way. It's not that you have to squash it and say, Oh, it's not so bad. Don't, don't feel this way. But my husband may have been the genetic carrier of Crohn's disease, but he's also really tall and so are they. And he's good looking and so are they. And so there's a lot of really great quality. They got a lot of good stuff from him. It wasn't that that was the only thing Mm. that they got. And you know, it's interesting because I've always heard with Ironman distance or ultra marathoning that if you're doing this, it's because you're running from something. Or it's a, you're escaping from something, or you have some big issue that you're trying to get away from. And I actually look at those sort of ultra distance events like Ironman and ultra marathons as a way of finding something. Mm. And it really is. It's given me so much strength and it's given me so much resolve. And I don't think that doing an Ironman is that hard when I think about what my kids have to go through when they're get, taking a barium test or having to swallow crappy fluids because they have to do it. I'm choosing to do it. And, and I think that it's, um, you know, it's something that has helped me, I guess, help me show them that, that we're sort of invincible. Mm. Except yeah. my hamstring. And maybe not so invincible. Yeah, except for your <laughs> hamstring. So did, with the hamstring, that's beautiful. It's so beautiful. And I think that this acknowledgement of it's okay not to be okay, you know? And um, BJ and I have recently navigated like our first kind of massive trauma in life. Um, And it has 
taught me uh, so much about grace, so much about allowing for our human process, so much about, you know what, today is not about, I don't want to make a gratitude list today. It doesn't mean I'm not grateful. I'm just not going to make my list because I, I need to just gently move my body and be okay with not being okay, you know? Not even being okay with it, just being with the part of me that's not okay. And there's, wow, there's so much strength, I think, that comes from that. Um, there's a beautiful quote that I love from Lao Tzu from the Tao, which is, you know, can you be, I might, I might mix up some of the words here, but like, can you be, can you be patient enough for the mud to settle in the water to become clear again? Can you be still enough for the right action to arise? And sometimes it's not about making decisions and, and sometimes it's just, you know, watching a movie that makes you feel good or just receiving a hug from somebody. And I think that that's such a big acknowledgement. And that is what allows us not to run from things, but to right. find what's in there. I think that it's really cool. A really great thing that I've done is been able to go out on a run and just have a really ugly cry. Yeah. Like one of those yeah. really like, you can't, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's just like, you don't want to, yeah, you, want to, you don't want to do that in front of anybody else, but it's a space that you can. And that's been a big, a big part of it. Or even being with around people when you're training that are just accepting you for what's going on and letting you talk um, has been a huge thing. You know, that's the beauty of running and cycling is that you don't have to look at anybody in the face. <laughs> while you're doing it. Right. And um, that's why they always say have conversations with your teenager in the car because they don't have to look at you and you don't have to look at them. And it's a safe spot. It's the same thing as being near somebody on a bike or um, on a long run is you can share things. And of course, on the run stays on the run, right? If you say it on the run, it stays on the run. On the bike stays on the bike. So that provided me with a lot of therapy and mm -hmm. a, lot of, um, a lot of opportunity to grieve and then come home and be present for my family in a stronger way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How did your how did your children navigate it, you know, when they get the news? Um they were varying ages. One was 18, you said, and one was 11. Yes. And then what was the youngest? That so 18, I think it was like 18, 9 and 11. Um the 18-year-old big sis became the advocate, became the second mom. Mm -hmm. Um, my youngest always calls her mom, um, mm -hmm. because she, she really helped out with a lot of that. She, she joined the Crohn's and Clyde's Foundation as a college advocate, and we ended up speaking on Capitol Hill, she and I, sharing our story, which was pretty cool, going in and talking to everybody. And so she kind of took that leadership role. Our middle, I remember her saying that she went to lunch that day at, at Skolan Middle School or at Scotts Ridge Middle School and said, to the her table. Well, I have Crohn's disease, and that was it. And everybody's like, "Ah, ew, what's that? Oh my God, your butt!" Like you know that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and then our youngest one, you know, she she's the toughest one, and she I think she was didn't really understand it quite. You know, mm -hmm. she's pretty young when it happened, nine, and so she just kind of accepted it. Although I think she also was angry because it took her out of school. It made her different. Um, that sort of thing. This child, Jane, is um, the youngest, the baby, always will be. Um, when she was 17, so um, a couple years ago, she's 21 now, she started to complain about a pain in her back. 
And this is, I had just opened up Ridge Hill Running Company. Things were going really well with that. Run Like a Mother was really busy. We had all this stuff going on. She's a senior, so usually senior, in, or she's a junior. Juniors in high school are busy with everything. Her back wasn't getting better, and we sent her to an orthopedic. He said, it's backpacks too heavy, your muscles are, um, you know, hamstrings are too tight or whatever. Well, turns out it was a tumor in her spine, and um, it was it was a benign tumor, which is great. We always like to hear those words, but it was a bone-eating tumor that collapsed her spine. And so when we found that out, she was taken quickly to Yale um, Hospital, and they kept her for a week before they could really figure out what was going on with her and what this tumor was and how to attack it. And she had about a 10-hour surgery and ended up with two eight or 10 inch rods in her back and some what they call peak vertebrae, which is a plastic vertebrae to replace those two um, that had collapsed from this this tumor and sent us on our way. And that really messed her up. I think she missed 60 days of school. And we went back 12 weeks later to have a follow-up MRI and the tumor came back and had doubled in size. No, my God. Yeah. And Holy so this moly. poor kid, her senior year of high school, and and now now you're really going, well, how do I, what do what do I do? And uh, again, I took to running. And when she was in the hospital, I'd run the stairs of the hospital. I'd you know get a break, run outside. I'd do whatever I could to try and get my mind clear and understand what was going on with with our baby. And she. Um, at that point, we had tried, we reached out to Memorial Sloan Kettering, and they had a doctor that said, "You know what? I think we can we can take care of this for you. We just need to put her on this this drug that will harden the tumor." So they put her on Exgevo, which is a drug they give osteoporotic women. So she has the toughest bones and teeth that anybody will ever have now, <laughs> but it hardened the tumor, and they were able to successfully take it out about six months later. And when they took it out. They had to leave a tiny bit in there, so we still get checked every time, but we're pretty sure it's dead. And um, she ended up with the two rods, a little reconstruction, and a, and a fibula in her back. Ooh. Cool, oh, right? wow. That's, wow. So, <laughs> that's just, more, you know, that when I hear stories like that, like, that's what modern medicine is for. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that's just miraculous. What brilliant, like, brilliant brilliant human beings that, you know, want to expand the mind and find these solutions. It's just, yeah. it blows me away. Like, yeah, that's and beautiful. She's, she's great now. And, you know, we go back every six or 12 months for an MRI and, and they just kind of say, it's, it's good, you're good. And the further we get away from it, the better it is. Um, it was a total anomaly that had nothing to do with her Crohn's disease. It had nothing to do with anything else. It was just a weird... Mm. thing but you know in the same in the same time I could have been completely consumed with it and we figured out a way to kind of keep marching on and keep our life going uh, was it the right thing to do in in retrospect um maybe we didn't take as big of an opportunity to grieve but it was her senior year in high school and we were trying to get her right back on track and as a parent you don't know what what's right and what's wrong <laughs> Yeah. I'm starting to, I'm so glad we had this whole backstory here because I'm starting to feel the weight of how passionate you may be about mothers getting out and taking time and running because you're holding some massive space for your kids, for your husband, 
and for yourself um, and taking that time running the stairs in the hospital like I, I love that, right? Like right before this interview, I said, I'm going out for a run because I said, even if I'm sweaty when I show up, I know Megan will agree that I needed to go out <laughs> for that run. And, um, and it was two miles. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's so important to have your two-mile route, right? Like, or your, or your one-mile route and know that everything mm-hmm. matters. So um, kind of sliding over towards the birth of Run Like a Mother, um, it's obviously got a lot of foundation that had been building through your own life experience. But when does this 5K come into, like, when does it birth through you? It birthed through me in 2007. So I had, we had moved to Connecticut in 2006. And as a mom does, we try to make sure that our kids have the right play dates. Everybody's happy. They have friends. You have people over. And all of a sudden, I looked around. I'm like, huh, I don't have any friends. <laughs> and so somebody had reached out to me. had heard I was training for the New York City Marathon and said, hey, you want to come run with our run group? We're not fast, but why don't you come with us? And that was a group of women that we kind of called ourselves the Racy Ladies. And um, we started running together every Sunday. And so they really are responsible for for helping me th- navigate all this difficult time in my life. And the first year that I was here, I guess it was 2007, the first Mother's Day together, we all invited friends on Mother's Day to go for a run. Some walked, some ran. We all had coffee at Steve's Bagels, which is the local little place, and hung out. And, and then we went back to our families. And in 2008, I woke up about six weeks before the before Mother's Day, and I was like, huh, run like a mother. Wouldn't that be funny? I would love to have everybody feel what I felt like in 2007 with this celebration of women. Um, even though there was not a fin- official finish line, we just got to, we all felt good. We were sweaty. Our faces were flushed, and we were going to go tackle our our families for the rest of the day, go back to breakfast in bed. And so I had a couple of my buddy friends over that were race directors, and I said, what do you think if I put this race on? It was six weeks away. Run like a mother. And they're like, ah. Do it on the rail trail. If you get 50 people, that way you don't have to hire police, you, you know, it's be safe. And it was really before Instagram and Facebook or anything became very big. And so we, the women that I ran with and I, we sent out emails that said, hey, register for this race. And we've got 500 women. <laughs> <laughs> like in three days. You're like, we need cops. Oh, I was like, oh my gosh, I've put, I've ran a lot of races, but I've never put one on. Yeah. And we did it on the road. And, um, so we closed the race at 500 women. We had cotton t-shirts made. I all of a sudden got this energy of like, what could this be to the two women? And what could this, how empowering could it be to do this? So I registered the trademark. We put the race on. Everybody got a flower at the finish line. Um, it was an all-women's race, and it was the best day ever. It was the best day ever for me. It's the best finish line I'd ever seen, and it was the best day ever for all these women. And so that's when it started in 2008. And then 2009, we added a kids' race, partly because we want— I My premise with Run Like a Mother is always, when somebody asks me, can I push a stroller, I'm like— Mm, some st- some cities don't allow us, but if you push a stroller, then the race isn't about you anymore. It's about the goldfish that your kid drops and says, Mommy, I want that. Or it's about the binky that gets thrown off the side, or you're going too fast, or you're going too slow, or I have a dirty diaper. And it takes away from your experience in your finish line. So I always try and tell women, you know what? You can walk this, 
you can run it, but do it for yourself or do it with your older daughter or your, your mom or, or somebody else, but do it so that it's a, about you. Pretend like it's a day that you are meeting your friends for lunch because we do that a lot. We meet girlfriends for lunch and we sit around and we kibitz and that sort of thing. But do it out on the run and do it while your heart's pumping and you'll see what I see um, when you train for something and you cross that finish line. Oh my gosh. How, how would you, how would you, um, how would you help moms who are just overwhelmed with the guilt of taking time for themselves. Like, it's just too much. Like they sign up for the race and yet the race comes and they just, I just, I just can't do this. I need to be here for my family. I need to do this for my husband and mm. I need to be here. And, and that's kind of where the rubber meets the road is like, mm. you're, you're so close to taking time for yourself, yet there's that habit or condition that we need to care for others and not ourselves. How, I'm sure you've had to yeah, well, that's a, that's a total mom thing, right? We're the third on the list. Listen, if our kids are sick, we are on the phone with the doctor right away. We're getting them in. We're getting them taken care of. When we're sick, we have something that goes on wrong. We're, it's 5.08, and we're like, shoot, I forgot to call the doctor again for myself. We just don't take the time to take care of ourselves. And so if you... I always tell people when you... You have to trust your crazy idea. And that's the way that I've lived my life is just trust your crazy idea. And if it's getting out to do a 5K or an Ironman for the first time, you have to internalize it and think about it yourself and then start sprinkling it out there to your universe, to your husband, to your kids. Hey, what do you think? Mom's going to train for this. And then put it on the fridge, your registration. And, and make a commitment to do it. And if your husband, if you work full time and your husband works full time and you have kids and there just isn't that time, there actually is. If it's getting up a half an hour early and like you said, just your two mile loop, just making that an appointment for yourself. I mean, you hear that again and again, make it, you know, work, make your workout an appointment, make it something you can't cancel. You just have to make space for it. And there, there is space in everybody's life, whether it's at lunch break or, um, you know, while your kids are at soccer practice, taking that time and running around instead of sitting in the car or running another errand, it all gets, it'll all get done. It always does. Yeah. And, um, and you wrote a book, right? And the book, uh, what I loved, I went on Amazon and I was checking out like the description of it and, one of the things I love, it gives training plans and just simple training plans. Like this is not, training for an Ironman or training for a 5K is not sexy. It's <laughs> consistency, right? It's, it's a little bit, if you can see our shirts right now, our shirts say a little bit every day over a long period of time because we found that that's the recipe for everything. It's the recipe for a successful relationship, a successful business, um, being a success as a mom, right? If you can even quantify that. Um, but also being successful in, in reaching our goals. So simple training plans and also encouraging women to, um, to, to find this gift for themselves, give it to themselves and how it can lead to having more balance in their lives. So can you tell us a little bit more from your perspective about the book? Like it, was it a hard one to write or did you just flow? Like, like you woke up with the words run like a mother. I love that. So how is the book? So it's really interesting, and um, I have been told that I have, have sort of a craptacular life, 
that I have amazing highs and amazing lows and that it just kind of is just the way that things that things happen and craptacular <laughs> works because it has to do with Crohn's disease, right? Um, so I had a really good friend that passed away. Actually, she's a mom that's um, been a big part of who I am today. And her name was Noreen. And she was a big part of Run Like a Mother. And she was exactly what we're talking about today in that she had some issues, some bowel issues. And she's like, I'll call the doctor tomorrow. I'll call the doctor tomorrow. She had four kids, never happened, finally went and got checked. And she had, um, she had colon cancer. And so she passed away um, in 2013, actually right before Ironman. And um, my whole goal was to get her to come watch that race. And she actually passed away when I was up at a training weekend um, in June of 2013. And But she had always told me, Megan, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. You need to write a book. And I was like, ah, no, no, no. But at that point in 2013, I had also run the Boston Marathon. And it was the most beautiful day of the Boston Marathon ever. This is before she passed. It was in April. And just a gorgeous, gorgeous day. Well, it was also the day of the bombing. And I crossed the finish line with a friend. We were celebrating, turned the corner to go back and meet our families. And the first bomb went off. I was like, oh, man, that sounds like a cannon. It's Patriot's Day. Like, that's probably what it is. Turned the corner again and met a sea of people coming out of screaming. And the next bomb went off. And I, I don't know. It, it, we all know how horrific that was in those moments when we were still stuck kind of in Boston trying to figure out if our hotel was going to um, go, what was going to happen. It was terrifying. It was something you had no control over. Um, we made it home. And um, I wrote a blog post. And this was before even really blogging was a big thing. But I wrote a blog post about they should run. Meaning if those terrorists took the time to love themselves enough that runners don't bomb people. <laughs> We're not like that. We, we, have, we have clarity in our heads. We work out a lot of problems. We have a little bit of love or we at least admire ourselves enough to get out and take care of ourselves. And if, if these terrorists did that, they probably wouldn't have done what they did that day in Boston. And that blog went viral. And... So I guess a lot of people had read it and I was writing at that point for Run Like a Mother had a, a pretty solid blog following and also um, a couple other health websites. And then I did Ironman in July and my hamstring came off and I had was scheduled for surgery in August or September. And all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I was supposed to be non-weight bearing on crutches with a brace from my hip to my ankle and what was I going to do? I have never sat still. And I was laying there on the couch just home from the hospital, and I got an email from a publishing company. And this guy, a publishing publisher, saying, hey, I read your blog post, and I see what you're doing with Run Like a Mother. We think you should write a book. So I hadn't even written the book. And they said, we think you should write a book, and we think you should write it encouraging women to take time for themselves and encouraging women to get out the door and, and share with them what you feel and that it's not intimidating and it's not, everybody can do it. And so I said, great, I'll write that book. It's already been in my head. So it was six weeks of, um, of time where I had to sit still and really 
Right. And then I had my contractor come over and he made a walking desk for my treadmill. And I wrote a lot, walking two miles an hour while I strengthened my hamstring again. And then the book came out in October and it came out the following October, 2014, right at the same time that I opened up Ridgefield Running Company. So it was like this perfect collision of fun, cool things. Oh my gosh. That is, I mean, timing, like we always say timing is, timing is perfect. Like it's divine would be the word that I would use for it. You know, I, I believe that even though life pushes and pulls us and kicks us when we're down, it does ultimately love us. And, um, that just seems like such a, a contrasting series of events that led you to a higher sense of purpose in writing this book that I can only assume has given so many other women permission to do exactly what it is within us, which is like what we want and what makes us feel alive and happy. Because if we're left behind, there's not a sustainable happiness there. You know, it's interesting because I think women, um, ah, we're just so kick-ass. Like I think we're way stronger than anybody else out there. Um, and we're constantly being thrown with being the caretaker and, and I'm not discounting men because there's plenty of really great dads out there and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, family really comes a lot from a woman. And so it can be really fulfilling and it can be really, really draining and taxing at the same time. And so trying to figure out where, where your space is that, that you can be all that and then also be the person that you want to be. I think we just forget. And, um, and all of us have these adverse moments that are, are maybe designed to try and break us down a little bit. But I think every time, you know, my sister said to me the other day, it's a great thing, fail forward. Like, yeah. Yeah. you get hit with this, come right back, come right back, come right back at me. Because look, I'm stronger than that, and I'm bigger than that, and better than that. And I think that that's why um, I just want people that have never done anything like a 5K to just put it, put themselves out there and try it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not what it's not what happens to us. It's what we what we do about it. And that your story in life could have looked completely different for someone else with the same circumstances, and could have gone down the opposite path, which is, you know, um, which is probably what society would expect, right? Because you've been knocked down and knocked down and knocked down. But it's our relationship to what is. Uh, appearing in front of us. It's our relationship to that and, and how we continue to, to face it and then move on to the next thing and then yeah, the next I, thing. I, um, I have a quote that I've always, and I have, to, I have to actually look at it and read it, but it's a Khalil Gibran quote, and it's, out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. And that really speaks to me. Like, there's a lot of people that can skate through life and, you know, and we can all look at them and think, wow, you know, they, they're just on top of the world. They don't have anything. And I think, wow, but maybe they just don't really have any character either. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know, we develop who we are by, by our life experiences and in, in our approach. And I think, yeah, having a positive attitude has, has helped me a lot, but it's also being out there and on the runs that have really brought me the, the biggest salvation. It really is such a big part of my life. And when I'm injured, 
even ask my husband, I'll say, yeah, do you think you could just go out for a little bit and come back with that same thing that happens every time you go for a run or a ride? <laughs> so um, I saw that Run Like a Mother is 5K this year. Can you tell us um, more about how people can get connected with that? And I know there's a, a recent announcement that was made uh, as well through another <laughs> connection yes. that we share. <laughs> So I, in the past, so Run Like a Mother started in 2008, so it's 13, 14 years old. I guess it'll be the 14th one this year. And in that time, my life has changed so much, and I opened up Ridgefield Running Company, and then um, and I opened that with a partner, and she's since moved um, a couple years later. And I moved Ridgefield Running Company to Main Street in our little tiny town, and then this last year opened up Darien Running Company in the midst of the pandemic. Um, which was really a big, crazy idea, but it's it's been a good one. Um, I started to realize that Run Like a Mother needed a little bit more love than I had time and space for. And my focus has been, over the last couple of years, the running stores and the business that I get and the gratitude I get from fitting somebody for a pair of shoes when they walk in the door and say, I'm not a runner, but... So we even have a sign in our store that says, I'm not a runner, but... Um, and and I love, love Run Like a Mother. It just wasn't able to give it all that it needed. And so many months ago, I met Sarah Ratzlaff, who owns Zuma Runs. And she also um, has a partnership with Nicole DeBoom <laughs> in Skirt Sports and also just um, is acquiring Momentum Jewelry, which is really oh. great inspirational wraps. Yeah, and I just like actually, some, one of our coaches just gifted me with a beautiful one. Yeah, yeah I they're love. super cool. Go Sarah. She's I know. Eat, she's queen. eating up the world. Yes, <laughs> queen of the women women things. Yes. Um, and so we started this conversation and she's a really accomplished race director and really accomplished at putting on big scale things. Um, last year, Run Like a Mother was virtual for the first time. And we had about 2,000 people across the United States participate virtually. And I had to package all that with my staff at Ridge Hill Running Company. <laughs> we were like a sweatshop in the midst of the pandemic, masks and everything, stuffing bags with medals and um, or posters, you know, the USPS mailers with medals and T-shirts and things. And um, and it's it was it's hard to do when you don't have that space. And so Sarah and I started to have the conversation, and we knew that in order to do things right, run like a mother needed to be virtual again this year, one more year. And um, so I licensed run like a mother to Zuma Run, and it's going right into her fold of incredible races and a platform that she puts on. Um, and so I'm I'm really excited to be part of it, and excited to be kind of connected with Nicole and all that that Sarah's building. So it's pretty cool. It's very cool. I love it, and we have to be willing to let go to grow. Um, so I'm sure. That, is there a little bit of like, a, oh my gosh, I'm letting it go? <laughs> yeah, there. There's a lot of that. I mean, the original Run Like a Mother logo was um, drawn by my aunt, who was probably 80 when she drew it, and it was a very cocopelli looking primitive. Uh, four stages of womanhood, women running pregnant, women running with a stroller, woman running with kids in tow, and then a woman running free, kind of almost like a, what do you call that, a petro hieroglyph oh, or whatever. Yes, yes. And, um, and then it got digitized many years later so that it looked like 
everything else does in the world today. And, um, and I love, I love the brand and there's nothing more than that finish line. There's nothing more than getting somebody to understand the love of running for the first time. And so giving it up is a little bit bittersweet, but Sarah is, um, calls me all the time and I'm an advisor for her. Uh, she's using our training programs and she's using our kind of run like a mother speak and she does a great job at it. And she's got a whole staff of people that um, are in that whole progression of life that I've sort of passed now. Pregnant, running with toddlers, that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's so cool to to look at the bigger picture with you stepping back mm. from it. It's actually going to let your message and your passion expand even bigger. It's so oh, cool. I hope so. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, heck really yeah. Awesome. Oh, heck yeah. 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 And I oh. think, you know, the first two days that she opened the race series, I think she's probably got almost close to 2,000 people already signed up and it's not even close. She's got some really great swag, um, really great, beautiful medals and t-shirts and, and things like that. And so I'm excited to see what she does with it. And I'm excited to see it go live again. I'm really hopeful for 2022. We'll all be racing mm -hmm. and we'll all be crossing finish lines together. Oh, heck yeah. Awesome. Megan, this has been an amazing conversation. We're so grateful to meet you, to have been connected with you and, and to share this time with you. Thank you for sharing so honestly and generously. And um, we'll put links in the show notes to Ridgefield Running Company, Darien Running Company, all that stuff so people can reach out. Do you guys do anything virtually for people who aren't local? Um, Sure. So we do. I mean, don't we all do virtual now? Like <laughs> we you, all do virtual. Yeah. If you don't so do we, virtual, you're a loser. <laughs> we do Zoom fittings. Cool. Um, they're not. They're not. Um, of course, we always love to have people, and it's safe now to have people in the store. Um, we do a whole 3D um, fitting with the gate analysis and and all of that. And um, you know, COVID has made forced me to do some really cool things in the store, and that we're kind of the Apple Store of running stores. We're all iPad. There's no cash, old cash register. There's none of that. Everything happens right on the fit stool to kind of stream things together. So, um, and I know that we have met before. So, um, <laughs> at some point we crossed the line have. together. I know. It's just way too many, um, too many coincidences. Here. I know. I know. All right. Cool. So you guys definitely check out what Megan's got and um, run like a mother on Mother's Day for sure. Yay, even, thank even you, you BJ. Even you I, better run like a I mother. BJ does run like a mother. <laughs> he's fast and strong. <laughs> he is. <laughs> no, Thanks. he's supposed to not run that day. He's supposed to be making Support. you the breakfast in bed. Yeah. The cheerleader. Yeah. Like I do every day. Yeah, yes. oh. more of that. I want lunch, too. <laughs> thank you so much, you guys. Yes, thank you. Thank you.